Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues of Reform. We'll pick up from where we left off last and discuss the role state banks play within development with Robert Cherenko. Dr. Cherenko's research examines business behavior with a focus on capital formation, banking, financial markets, corporate governance and finance, macroeconomics, and tax policy. He received his PhD from Northwestern University and has had faculty positions at Cornell University, the University of Chicago, and full-time visiting positions at Stanford University and the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Prior to coming to the University of Illinois at Chicago, he was on the faculty of Emory University, where he was the Winship Distinguished Research Professor in Social Sciences. He is currently a professor in the Finance Department at the University of Illinois Chicago, a research fellow at the Center for Economic Studies in Munich, and an affiliate and member of the Faculty Advisory Panel of the Government and Finance Research Center. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Cherenko about state banks, centralization versus decentralization, and how equity and debt affect the economy. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Um, this talk is going to move in the opposite direction from the prior talk, I have a feeling, uh, because we're going to be talking about state banks. So rather than talking about decentralization, we're going to be talking about more centralization. So it's an interesting contrast uh, to what we had uh, just uh, in the last hour or so. Um, and so my, the topic here is um, certainly a bit more narrow than what we've had uh, in several of the other sessions. And our topic is going to be, is a state bank a useful economic development tool? And just to be clear, when I say state, I mean one of the uh, subnational entities here in the United States, for example, or the launder in Germany and so on. So the outline for today's talk is to basically talk about this emerging interest that exists in the United States with respect to state banks, talk a little bit about some skepticism uh, and therefore a need for a framework uh, to analyze this. And indeed, really what this talk is today is the development of that in a very quick way of that framework. There is a paper that underlies this, uh, a full-blown paper, and I imagine it's going to be available in some form on the uh, Henry George website, uh, as well as my own personal website. Um, we're going to talk about underserved communities, which is one of the uh, motivations for these state banks, uh, looking at lessons learned uh, through historical experience. And all this is going to lead us to four key questions that we want to ask as to whether or not a state bank is going to be a good idea or a bad idea. And then lastly, we're going to talk about BND, the mysterious BND, which is the Bank of North Dakota. Great. So there's some emerging interest here in the U.S. in terms of state banks. In 2019, for example, the state of California passed the law that allowed municipalities to have their own uh, public banks. Uh, more recently, in 2021, uh, basically uh, five states are, uh, introduced, had legislation introduced in which they could uh, create a state bank, Illinois, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, and Washington, and two other states, Hawaii and Massachusetts, are exploring the uh, possibility of creating a state bank. So clearly the interest is increasing here, 
um, uh, for sure. And it's motivated in part my research and my research interest in this topic. In the background, however, is the Bank of North Dakota. Bank of North Dakota has been around for over 100 years uh, and is prospering uh, very, uh, very well. And we'll come back to that as we go through the, uh, the talk uh, here. Again, one of the, and perhaps one of the reasons that there's so much interest in state banks is uh, we've clearly had a crisis situation the last few years, uh, and crises propel change. And so I offer two quotes here, one from uh, a well-known Democrat and one from a, obviously uh, someone on the right, uh, where they sort of are agreeing this point. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, who's former chief of staff of President Obama, uh, former mayor of my city here in Chicago, and now our uh, ambassador to Japan, um, mentions how you don't want to let a serious crisis go to waste, uh, and we really want to exploit the opportunities that that crisis uh, creates. In a similar spirit, Milton Friedman, in the second edition of his uh, book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, in the uh, introductory, talks about the inertia and how inertia can be overcome uh, during these crises. So in that spirit, we want to look at what state banks have to uh, offer uh, in this uh, regard. Okay. Let me talk about a little skepticism as I got involved in this. So my initial reaction when I was approached about working on this topic uh, by folks at the Government Finance Research Center here at the University of Illinois at Chicago was skepticism. This couldn't really be a good idea. We'll come back a little later why a person from Illinois will tend to think that. Um, but um, certainly thought it was just maybe not a, a much of a starter and not much interest for research. But then the Bank of North Dakota comes to fore. And you have to realize they've been around for 100 plus years, they're prospering currently, and they've done a lot of, uh, a lot of work, seemingly good work uh, in the North Dakota uh, in helping small and medium firms uh, prosper. So what I led, led me to <clears throat> is the need to uh, develop a framework. <clears throat> And the framework's gonna focus on three issues. One is to look at underserved communities, which is again, one of the reasons that uh, state banks have been discussed. Look at the lessons from the prior experiences and then again, come to these four key questions. Okay. Let's talk about underserved communities for a couple minutes. So the underserved communities are further divided into concerns about transaction services and concerns uh, um, about uh, credit availability. Let me focus on transaction services first. And the fact is uh, that uh, as of a year or two ago, 19% of Black, Hispanic, and Asian American households didn't have a banking relationship. So that discrimination uh, is obvious. Uh, the facts, I think, are pretty uh, clear. What's less obvious, though, is the source of that discrimination. Uh, is it animus against these communities of color uh, or poor communities in general? Uh, or is it economics? And so let me talk for just a minute about something that has nothing to do with banking, uh, but has everything to do with the animus versus economics question. And that is a field experiment that was conducted by some folks. Um, and what they did is they had a disabled people, as well as able uh, people, uh, approach uh, various uh, um, car service uh, organizations for, uh, for car repairs. Uh, and asked how much was going to be charged. And of course, they're holding the car repair uh, that was needed uh, constant. And what they found, surprisingly, was that the disabled were charged on average a 30% premium relative to the uh, fully able, um, which is rather surprising since you'd expect, if anything, sympathy and so on might uh, appeal a little bit 
uh, for the folks who were disabled. Um, the authors go on to uh, analyze the data and their conclusion is, it's because the disabled are, because of the nature of their disability, less able to get around to shop, uh, their network's gonna be smaller, and that the firms are basically in effect taking advantage of it. Okay, so it's not animus per se, it's simply economics and the lack of a network. A second and related uh, point uh, is the price of laundry detergent. And again, I assure you, this is a topic on banking and finance, but let's talk about laundry detergent for just a second. And it's a surprising fact that prices of laundry detergent is lower in higher income areas. I don't think that's what you would have expected initially. Uh, folks in higher income areas are gonna be less price sensitive uh, and clearly have higher incomes and can absorb higher prices. But when you look at it a little more closely, you find out that there's some other factors going on. And those factors are, there's more competition in higher income areas. You have more stores. Of course, you know about things like food deserts in poor areas. Uh, the more, there's more competition. Competition tends to drive down prices. And not only that, but the stores that are locating in the higher income areas tend to be larger chains than the ones in the lower income areas. Uh, larger chains have more buying power, can keep the cost down. Uh, and so both of those factors, more competition and lower cost, lead to the outcome, surprisingly, that uh, prices are lower in high uh, income areas. So again, you have this tension between animus versus economics now going back to the provision of banking services. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, to, to analyze. And there's a bit of a paradox. I think in uh, several presentations, certainly yesterday, I, I, I gathered them, I think bankers are viewed as relatively greedy. Um, and the question would be, why would these greedy bankers pass on profit opportunities in low-income communities? Maybe it really is economics and it's not necessarily uh, animus. I don't answer that question in the paper. I just raise it and, uh, and move on a bit because I don't think we need to answer that. Because in terms of transaction services, there's a whole set of emerging solutions. Mobile banking is trending upward. Unbanked households are falling sharply from 8.2% in 2011 to 5.4% of 2019. ATMs are quite available, not only in banks, but certainly in grocery stores and so on. Uh, and the cost of opening a bank account can be relatively low. Uh, I surveyed Chase, Citibank, and uh, United Bank, which is the largest Black-owned bank in the country. Fees are waived if people deposit $500 a month. Um, so my conclusion is that these transaction services have not been well distributed across the uh, population. Um, uh, but I don't think we need to answer that particular uh, question here. I think a lot of the current and ongoing developments are going to sort that issue out relatively straightforwardly. I mentioned as an aside that some of the discussions about uh, provision of trans transaction services through state banks or other state organizations offer the post office solution. That is to say we have post offices in just in every zip code I believe in America and that we can offer uh, banking services in the post office. That strikes me as a very odd potential solution. Again, one I don't think we necessarily need um, one's experience for many people with the United States Post Office is not that they were going to offer great uh, customer service. And not only that, many post offices just don't have the room for it. In uh, looking at some small banks that I've randomly uh, fallen into in Saugatuck, Michigan, and Boone, North Carolina, there is no room for additional work. So I think post offices is not a solution, and I just don't think we need one. I think the developments in the economy 
to uh, more transaction services by the internet, ATMs and so on, will probably uh, take care of this. And then lastly, just to uh, add one further thought on this, this issue, is to look at the 2021 Super Bowl, where a 30 second commercial costs five and a half million dollars. That is to say, it's a serious money. Two of the advertisers uh, provide online applications for mortgages, rocket mortgage and guarantee mortgage. And again, that suggests to me that the future of banking services and the trans transaction services uh, can be done uh, certainly online and in other ways. Uh, and it's not really a strong motivation for a state bank. But where there is, I think, a more of a compelling case is looking at credit allocation. Um, and the paper goes through and looks at a number of the costs that are associated with making a loan. And I look at four of them in particular here and compare and contrast a state bank versus a private bank. And my conclusion from that analysis is that uh, operating costs uh, and the cost of borrowed funds will tend to be lower uh, for the private banks. Alternatively, uh, the argument's been made, and I think it's a good one, as we'll see there's some evidence of that for sure, uh, that state banks may have more of a uh, knowledge about the local community and therefore be able to issue loans in a more efficient way and uh, have uh, lower default rates as a, as a result. So I could see state banks having a uh, lower default rate and hence having a comparative advantage in the provision of credit to uh, local communities. There's also an issue about access to low cost deposits. We're gonna get into some numbers a little bit later, um, but certainly one of the reasons that the Bank of North Dakota believes it's, it's excelled is that this, all the deposits by the state of North Dakota have to be deposited there. Deposits are generally thought of as low cost funds and insofar as that would be uh, part of a creation of a state bank, uh, the cost would uh, fall as a result. So I see that, the, that there is some, uh, you know, a reasonable case here, both in the sense of uh, private banks having some advantages and state banks potentially having some advantages. And we'll want to explore that a bit uh, further. Now, as an aside, in this literature on state banking, I've countered it several times. Uh, what I call the excessive equity cost fallacy. And that is that the cost of equity and dividends uh, carried by private banks is avoided by a state bank, and therefore that's a big advantage of a state bank. I don't think that's the proper interpretation of what equity is doing. Equity is, and, and certainly the truth of the matter is, and certainly the truth of the equity cost fallacy, is that equity is in fact more expensive than debt. But there's a couple of different characteristics that are important. First is equity, unlike debt, uh, unlike deposits, uh, are permanent uh, financing for a bank. Permanent financing is a benefit in general, and it's particularly a benefit uh, during the times of financial crisis. And you can certainly ask Lehman Brothers if you could find them since they went bankruptcy, uh, exactly that uh, the, the, the advantages of uh, private equity. The second advantage of private equity is that the dividends are not paid first, they're paid last. That is to say, equity holders are the residual claimants on the cash flows or the profitabilities of banks. Um, and that's a big advantage uh, as well uh, because other uh, claimants are gonna get paid first and dividends don't necessarily have to be paid if profits happen to be uh, absent. So higher equity cost is in fact true, but it's really a valuable insurance premium. Uh, and to think that by not having equity, which a state bank would in some ways not have, though I don't think it's 100% true, uh, that there's a real advantage to state banking is I don't think quite right. Deposits, borrowings, equity are each liabilities which have unique and valuable characteristics. Let me come back to my outline 
talk about the lessons learned by the prior banking experiences that have existed. And so there's a long part of the discussion in the paper, none of which we'll be able to talk about in detail here, uh, to look at several uh, initiatives. The one, as I mentioned before, is the Bank of North Dakota, uh, which has been profitable uh, in, in more recent years. It had a rough start um, when you look back at the history, but certainly now is doing extremely well. The state of Massachusetts looked into banking in 2010, actually had a very detailed report, and from a commission decided not to move forward for various reasons. Uh, my own state of Illinois in 2010 made an inquiry uh, to the university system and some of the scholars working there. I was not one of them. I wasn't here at the time um, about the advisability of the Bank of Illinois, State Bank of Illinois. And again, the re reactions tended to be somewhat on the negative side. There's a, a detailed discussion in my paper looking at recent U.S. state and local initiatives. I look at actually the legislation itself to see what the motivations were. And we'll come back to the summary of that in just a minute. Here in Chicago, in the south side, uh, in a poor area, uh, something called the Shore Bank, a quasi-public bank, had existed for a number of years. Uh, they did very well for a while. They then expanded outside the city of Chicago, uh, and they failed during the financial uh, crisis. Clearly a case in point where uh, Mission Creek can get to be a problem. Um, though the positive side of the Chicago Shore Bank is that there may be, in fact, local knowledge that can be very, very useful um, for a, a, a public uh, bank. I spent a little time in the paper looking at U.S. state chartered banks. The his history between the Civil War and now didn't seem to be much, uh, too much useful information for this issue about state banks. And then Germany's had state banks for quite a while. Um, and again, perhaps the biggest lesson from there has been mission creep as well. They've moved from their initial very narrow focus to much broader international focus uh, there. Great. And so what I take from that are basically the following uh, six points. First, that deposits can be a very important source of funds and states with their huge deposit bases, uh, this, the, the state itself, the state of Illinois, the state of Massachusetts can be um, very useful and providing cheap funding to a state bank. That economic de development is really a key motivation in that legislation, much more on the credit allocation side that I had talked about before than the transaction side. That several of the states <clears throat> and several of the experiences uh, this highlight was perhaps obvious uh, that risk is inherent in banking and that has to be uh, taken into account. That equity attenuates the distress risk, uh, that mission creep, especially in the case of the Shore Bank, the state banks of Germany, um, um, have, uh, you know, uh, is very important and political influences can be very important and certainly an ongoing concern. And then lastly, that private bank competition is going to be important. If you start setting up a state bank, the private bankers in, in the state are, of course, going to be concerned. That was absolutely true in the case when North Dakota started its bank and still is one of the concerns. Uh, that was reflected in some of the legislation that was introduced uh, last year. <clears throat> so all this then leads us me to, the, uh, to ask four questions. And there's four key questions that have to be answered as to whether or not a state bank is a good idea or a bad idea. The first one is the true cost of state deposits. The benefits, as I mentioned, is that's a sizable and stable source of funds. How big? Well, for example, in Illinois, we actually have something called the Illinois Public Treasurer's Investment Pool. So small municipalities can place their funds uh, in that pool uh, and the money's managed in an appropriate uh, way. Interest rates aren't terribly high here, of course, 
uh, permanently, uh, but the funds are uh, there earning some, some modest interest. It's a huge amount of money. It's $7.4 billion with a relatively short maturity of 58 days. It really is a pool of deposits that could be very useful to a state bank. Uh, but there's cost as well associated with the state bank taking over the transaction services for the st a state. Uh, there's a set of, of financial transaction services are going to have to be provided. That's going to be costly. Um, the banks may be, um, the state of Illinois, for example, in its current arrangements with private banks may be getting some non-transaction services. I've explored that uh, issue with actually five executives from the private and public sector. And I must say, I haven't found very much value there. So that cost to me doesn't seem to be terribly important. Uh, and then there's a concern about destabilizing private banks. If you pull $7.4 billion out, uh, what's going to happen to a number of the banks here? I don't have an answer to this question. I'm just going to raise this as one of the four questions. There's a benefit and cost trade-off. The second is the vulnerability of bank risk. And some of these discussions about state banks uh, <clears throat> that banking is risky business is not always uh, discussed. There's clearly liability risk, uh, the, the, the deposits and so on, and the certificates of deposits, the borrowings it could uh, need to be repaid. And that could be a problem in financially distressed times. There's equity risk. If you put equity in the bank and it fails, uh, those funds disappear. The state will, in fact, be off, off, uh, offering some of that equity if it's, in fact, going to be the owner. And then there's uh, legal risk. Uh, as well. <coughs> and the legal risk uh, refers to how the state bank is organized. As you see at the bottom of this slide, there's two different ways. One is it can be separate from and owned by the state, just like another separate corporation. Um, and that has uh, some advantages, insulating the bank of uh, the state from risk, because if, if the bank did get in financial distress, the state would not be a uh, on the hook, except for, of course, the monies that it had invested in terms of liabilities and equities. Alternatively, the state could be, uh, state bank could be uh, chartered as uh, one that's doing business as a bank. That is to say, it really is part of the state government. And in one sense, that would be good. Borrowing costs may be lower because you have the full faith and credit of the state. But then again, you're putting the state in, uh, in terms of, uh, in a risky situation. So the taxpayers of a given state would be bearing risk. So again, these are just talking about the benefits and costs that are associated with uh, this. And the key question is, how is uh, bank risk going to be dealt with? <laughs> the third one uh, concerns about underserved communities. Uh, do we think a state bank would have better success in supporting underserved communities? Um, according to the Pew Foundation, past programs that have been targeted to lower income areas often fail to benefit the places and people they were intended to aid because they're poorly targeted and poorly tailored to community needs. Do we think state bank and the, the loan officers at state banks are gonna be able to do a better job than had been done uh, in the past? It's an open question. Um, evidence from the Shore Bank when it was concentrating in the neighborhood it knew is very positive. Um, other situations may not uh, have worked out as well, say in the case of Germany. And the fourth one concerns uh, insulation from politics. And so I end here uh, by asking, who are these four men? There's one, two, three, and the fourth one now may tip it, tip it off, four. Who are these four men? And how are they related to the state bank? Well, these are all former Illinois governors who 
who have been convicted and jailed since 1974. The governor is Kerner, Walker, Ryan, and Blagojevich. Blagojevich has been in the news in the last year or two since he was pardoned by President Trump. Um, I'm from Chicago and Illinois, uh, where political uh, interference and corruption is relatively rampant, as indicated by the previous set of slides. Um, Political interference in public banks seems to be a somewhat international phenomenon. There's a study uh, by Laporta et al. Uh, that comes to that conclusion. And so there's always going to be a concern about insulation from politics. Now, how did the Bank of North Dakota do so well? Well, here's a quote from the president of the Bank of North Dakota. And what it indicates is that if you're going to have a state-owned bank, you have to staff it with bankers. If you staff it with economic developers, people may be a little more closely related to, to political influences, you're going to have a very short-lived, very expensive experiment. Economic developers have never seen a deal they don't like, and we deal with that every day. Uh, and so there's one way of doing it is, of course, in terms of insulating a, a state bank from uh, politics, uh, would be to take this Bank of North Dakota approach. Again, the overarching question is, how did the governor and other uh, political officials not then press the Bank of North Dakota? Um, that's an important question. A more radical approach might be not to not think about a state bank, but to think about multiple state banks in a region, say here in the Midwest. We think of the states of Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, who are contiguous uh, to each other, and think of them as a consortium. And think about the lending activities and the profitability of these banks as being aggregated into a pool among all six of the regional banks. So there's this uh, overarching regional bank in effect. Um, what I need to do is give an incentive uh, for the banks for making profits. And so each bank is able to propose loans, uh, but those loans must be approved by a supermajority of the uh, of the six banks. So of six here, we would need four of those banks would need to approve loans. And hopefully that would get away from some of the political uh, issues, the political influence issues that we talk about. The thought here that X percent of those profits would be added to the equity base. And indeed all this would be done, of course, proportionately. Illinois would have a larger share than Iowa. We're just a bigger state. Um, and, but why percent of those profits would be allowed to be put out for special projects? Because indeed part of the reason of the state bank is that you may want to undertake some activities that have social returns that, that far exceed uh, profit returns. But the issue of insulation from politics is the fourth, and I think an unresolved kind of question that we have here. Lastly, let me end on one other question, which is a lingering question, which is the Bank of North Dakota. Again, as I mentioned previously, it's been in existence for 100 years. It's been very profitable. The overarching question is, what is the secret sauce for the Bank of North Dakota? Uh, and at this point, I'm going to tell you that's my next research project, and I don't have much answer. Uh, I have some data, and I look forward to trying to analyze that and find out why the Bank of North Dakota has been so successful. At this point, let me stop and be ha happy to take uh, some questions. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.